Hey, this is Rob, your Supreme Hierophant, just cutting in before we start today's episode. Uh, we, After we recorded this, I uh, realized that the episode ran pretty long, uh, so I've decided to split it up into two parts. Uh, so we didn't have it formally arranged that way, but that's how it's going to work out. Uh, so here's part one of Anna Kingsford. Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free by the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Anna Bonus Kingsford was at the center of one of the biggest controversies in the Theosophical Society during Helena Blavatsky's lifetime, arguing that Christian occultism was more accessible to a Western audience, uh, that is, uh, than Hindu or Buddhist thought, uh, which Blavatsky had come to prefer. She threatened to split the London Lodge in half. To hold things together both literally and figuratively, Blavatsky and Olcott had to make an emergency visit back from Adyar, India to London to quell the conflict brewing among London's theosophists, some of, by the way, the most influential theosophists of the 19th century. She was an advocate for vegetarianism, an enemy of scientists who performed experiments on live animals, and one of the most visionary Christian occultists of the occult revival. Anna Kingsford is a woman you may not have known about before today, but she very much deserves the opportunity to share with you her occult confession. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, joined back in the saddle uh, by Bree, with Bree, joined by Bree. <laughs> Hello. I'm glad to be joining our, you. Our today. metallurgic <laughs> prophet. How are things? Ooh. Uh. I'm in a fog of research, Rob, yes. so my brain's all over the so place. So Bree's given our secrets away, but that's okay. I think it's good to announce this because we're getting close to the next season, uh, and Bree uh, has taken up a, a role as a research assistant for me uh, to help with uh, the, our upcoming season on some occultists by request that you all in the podcastosphere have asked us to do. Uh, so, yeah. so Wow, the Requests? Yeah, every single one of these, yeah, that we're doing Interesting. Is Some of them are, like, a little... I get, like, I, there's, like, a couple that I'm, like, okay, obvious, like, ass, but then there's a couple that I was, like, okay. We have some, uh, you know, our listeners are, they're, they like the deeper cuts, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're going to be real excited for uh, my... <laughs> For your what? My, my oh, deep, your cuts deep cuts on uh, one yeah, of the episodes, right, okay. yeah. We're going to bring you all the treats and yeah. secrets. Uh, so uh, th- this is a wonderful thing, though, Bree, because, you know, I'm able to do whatever reading I like to do on the topic, and then you're bringing me a lot of the primary sources and, and that kind of stuff. So it's given us the opportunity to go a bit wider uh, as opposed to just deeper on these topics. It's uh, it's really neat. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I love getting to read the primary documents because I'm a, if I'm... Anything. I'm a primary documents yeah. gal. I love reading those documents. Well, something to look forward to. Also, Nikki Double H. Hiller Henderson is here, our naked truth from uh, a new city, new port of call. Yep, I uh, packed my belongings into my friend's SUV, drove eight hours, and I'm still cold, <laughs> but somewhere else. You went west, <laughs> went west, young woman, but you did not go south, so that is why you are still cold. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're not actually at home, so this is this the first time uh, that you're not naked for a, a podcast episode? 
<laughs> yeah, actually, because I'm I'm at my girlfriend's mom's house in her basement, so I th- figured like, yeah, I should probably is... keep my clothes on. It's one thing to be like, can I use your basement to record an occult podcast? And then she came downstairs, and I was like naked while doing it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but if you had a candle, <laughs> I think it'd be okay. Yeah, I feel like spiced <laughs> the place up and made it seem like I don't know, like purposeful maybe <laughs> hung some herbs put out a few crystals yeah. a few candles around your body it's perfectly normal we know what's going on oh, pull your, your mini cauldron out <laughs> right. you know i actually have a mini cauldron my girlfriend got it for me it's the cutest thing i'd expect no less there's little frogs on the legs there's frogs Mm-hmm, on the little so feet of it, they're little frogs. Oh, God, I love frogs. Coming soon to our merch page. Uh, let's pledge it out. Here we go. We the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the as far as we know it. You, do you know what we do now? We just open up the Order of Confessors now. We got rid of the plugs, and we open up the Order of Confessors oh. by making any sounds at all. I welcome the two of you to do this together. I got really tangled up in my headphones. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can hear <laughs> See, this is what happens oh when God. you wear clothes, man. <laughs> yeah, you just you get lost in the in the yeah. equipment. <laughs> You need to be smooth, sleek. You need to be able to slip right through those wires. Yeah. I'm okay, sorry. They need to have no hold over here, Nick. I'm going to count that the Order of Confessors has been opened by whatever that is. <laughs> we want to thank our newest patron, Laura C. When uh, I want to remind everybody, it's holiday time. It usually slows down for us on the old Patreon before and after the holiday. Uh, to join us on Patreon, it does keep the show commercial-free. Uh, we, we need to keep the patrons rolling because, you know, people come, they stay, they leave. Our patrons are a constantly rotating, rotating group. Um, that having been said, we are deeply grateful for those patrons who have been hanging with us for the long haul, and we like to take good care of you with lots of bonus content. Uh, and Bree is working on bonus episodes just for our patrons coming up in 2023. Uh, so come on. This is your time. This is your chance. Join the Patreon. They're pretty sick if I say so myself. She means that in every sense of the word. Uh, <laughs> they really are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fair warning. <laughs> also, we want to thank Zen Camus, a Camus who is Zen, uh, who says great about our show. And our library uh, here on the show has something for everyone. Uh, and the, Zen would like an episode on Israel Regardi. That's an interesting idea. So, Bree, add that to the list. All right, it's on my list now. Uh, And we want to thank everybody who has been uh, feeding us stars on the Spotify. We are chasing and chasing our secret rival podcast who spreads lies and nonsense. So uh, we do want to catch them and and not look, uh, I don't know, weaker by comparison. Uh, But but y'all are doing a great job there. All right. uh, I guess, Nikki, get tangled up in something else to close the Order of Confessors. Oh no, I'm tangled up in my microphone cord, but it's okay now. Oh, Wait, just, oh. <laughs> just, no, that was just, so fast. Wow, you really got out of that real quick. I'm getting quick at this. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm getting okay. Did you take this. something off? Is okay. that why? <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what happened. I just looked down and my realized my headphones were like, I was like, why am I so close to the computer? Like, I have no room to lean back. And it's because it was like tied around my neck like twice. Oh, no, that's dangerous. Oh, my God, Nikki. You were not ready to be birthed into the world. 
I, I, was, no. I was in a rush when I put them on, apparently. Yeah, I can, can tell. <laughs> All right, let me say this about Anna Kingsford before we get into this. I love this woman. I have I do a lot of research and read a lot of books and a lot of occult books, uh, and this research, I think, touched closest to, in a long time, uh, to uh, what I would consider, um, what I found spiritually inspiring. Like, I found this personally useful. Like, if I didn't have a podcast, reading Anna Kingsford, I I think, is just good for my soul. Um, So I I just want to say that as a way of introducing her, because I I know everyone, my dear confessors, you're like, who the hell, Rob, where did you drag this out of? But seriously, let's listen to what this woman has to say. Uh, my goodness, quite quite a character and uh, quite a spiritual genius. All right, now with that introduction, this better be good, right? <clears throat> yeah, I'm ready, Rob. <laughs> Annie Bonus, uh, who went by Ninon, Nina, Mary, uh, after Mary Magdalene, and Anna, which she came to use after she became a medical doctor, was born at 5 p.m. on Thursday, the 16th of September, 1846, at Maryland Point, Stratford, Essex. So far, so good. Her father, John, was a wealthy ship owner and married her mother, Elizabeth Ann, 20 years before Annie was born. The family motto was, En medio tutisimus, tutisimus, ibis. Of course, which you guys can easily translate. Uh, That means in the middle of things, you will go most safe. Oh, I like that. That warms my heart a bit. She had seven older brothers and four older sisters. Whoa. The oldest of which, yeah, 11. 11 brothers and sisters. (laughs) I think my great grandmother was one of, I want to say 19. Anyway. Oh my and my great grandmother, not exactly this time period, but close, close. So I guess it wasn't terribly uncommon, but that was a big family. So that uh, she was a healthy woman, Mrs. Bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aunt Annie's mother. Um, but anyway, the oldest uh, daughter, Anne, had died from consumption. And uh, since her mother had Annie when she was 41, she named her uh, nearly after her sister. Uh, so it's likely she was attempting to replace her lost daughter, Anne, with Annie. So Annie was born after her oldest sister died. Hmm. And she named her basically the same thing. Or you just have so many kids, you run out of names. You're like, uh, did <laughs> oh. I use Anne yet? Uh. What was the name of that one that died? That's mean, Nikki. Um, <laughs> oh. The, oh. the psychological <laughs> effects of this apparent replacement strategy didn't seem to have been detrimental to our second Annie's development. Although I agree with Nikki, this is a bit creepy. I don't know if that's Nikki's point, but I'm going to say it's a bit creepy. Yeah, absolutely. That was. It's that like was it. asking for your child to be possessed by your dead child. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, that's how maybe I she was it. open yeah. to it. Maybe Anne one was, was okay. inviting some things. <laughs> oh. So yeah, it's sort of like I don't like version one, version two. Like you, you're cranking out the latest, yeah. you know, iPhone or something. Annie Bonus was a gifted and industrious writer. At the age of 17, she had her first short novel published. What were you guys doing at 17? Were you publishing short novels? (laughs) I was definitely not doing anything good for myself. Uh -uh. The two of you were were, uh, roughhousing with the boys and making trouble in the woods, right? But here's Annie, right? Yeah, actually. (laughs) 
sure. I know the Eastern Shore, Bria. Sure, I don't know what, what was up there in Canada. You guys roughhouse in the woods? It's too cold out in the woods, isn't it? <laughs> you still party in the bush. You just dress up in layers. Oh, yeah, but that kind of kills the mood. Um, what was I saying? She often uh, focused her <laughs> novels, which she was writing while you guys were, you know, dressing up in the bush, uh, on deeply specific time periods to craft historical romances. In this case, her novel was about the persecution of the Christians in Diocletian's Rome. That is I'm very obsessed. specific. I am right. Obsessed. She's 17 years old. Very specific interest. <laughs> I love everything about her yeah. so far. <laughs> she published short stories, mostly historical fiction like this in a variety of magazines, but Annie certainly didn't need the money that she made publishing because her parents were rich and her father died in 1865 and set up trust funds for his daughters, which their husbands were not allowed to access or spend down and from which Anna received over 800 pounds a year in interest. Okay. Okay. Like yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's not like this. a working class hero. And, and I think everyone is, is hearing that, but she is kind of I a feminist more, icon. Like, the fact that their dad, like I'm more dad impressed by the, the dad. Yeah. yeah. That he had the foresight to like, be like, uh, uh-uh. uh, He's like, this is my daughter's money, not you, dumbasses. Well, because, I mean, in Annie's case, she hadn't even married yet. So he had no idea who was coming, right? Right, yeah. And it was scary for women. I mean, I don't know exactly when this is, but I know that, like, if you didn't have anything, like, to your name or something, and, like, if your dad died and you weren't married, you were kind of just screwed. Yeah, Or, or your property belonged to your husband. Mm-hmm. Right. That was usually the you are belonging and so are all of your things. <laughs> so the proto-feminist stipulations of her father's will proved an inspiration for Annie's own politics. In 1867, she circulated a, pe- circulated a petition for the right of women to control their own property after marriage. Counterpoint to what I just said. She's awesome. trying to change the law. Her choice of partner bore this way of thinking out. She met the, uh, I'm quoting here, unmoneyed, unmoneyed junior civil service clerk. Unmoneyed. Poor guy. Algernon Kingsford was our unmoneyed. Oh, that's such a good name, right? Algernon. He's like, he are, he's a character in a novel. Algernon loved her deeply yeah. and promised <laughs> not to interfere in any career she might undertake. It's feminists everywhere. Aww proto-feminist because we don't have feminists yet it's 1870 but still when her mother disapproved of her choice because he was too poor Algernon that is and sent Annie to Switzerland she arranged to run away with him convinced the trip would prove a scandal in high society her mother relented and allowed her to marry him I guess if you run away it looks like you got knocked up or something yeah Yeah. doesn't look good so she was like no 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 cancel your vacation plans you can get married Annie's new husband had lived through a troubling childhood, depriving him of both of his parents. His father was a preacher, and his mother died when he was only a year old. Uh, His father, yeah, it's terrible. His father, I mean, not uncommon. I mean, what with all the deaths and childbirth and the bajillion plagues, but still. I guess it's not the plagues in the 19th century, but medicine was not great. Um, His father, by the way, was a chaplain at a prison in Gibraltar, and four years uh, after uh, his mother died, his father cut his own throat in a fit of delirium and died. Oh, Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, dark stuff. That is... 
a way to go. He was distantly related to Annie by marriage uh, of her brother to the elder Kingsford's first cousin. And the family link is probably how they met in the first place. Let me let me do that again. I don't think they were blood related at all. The marriage of her brother to his first cousin. So they're only related by marriage. You know what? We'll take yeah. it. Back then, that's it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, they're not blood related, especially in the British Love upper it. class, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. married the same year uh, that Annie circulated her petition. By the way, about uh, the rights of women to contain control their property. So Algernon was like, yep, I'm with you there. No big deal. It was basically, uh, he was basically signing a prenup by saying, no, I'm with you. <laughs> he was 22. She was 21. Not uncommon. My mother actually got married at 21, but that was not in 1867. Soon after, they had a daughter who was to be the couple's only child, Edith. Annie and Algernon eventually determined to live as brother and sister, although they apparently enjoyed a very friendly relationship. So sex stopped. What? Yeah, they, what? They cut I'm off. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, you're gonna have to go back on. So that. what? I, what I mean by that is that they quit having sex. Couldn't they yeah, just but say I they were feel friends? Like, Why do you have yeah, to you say brother say, and sister? Because if you say her brother and sister, then it's like. I've had sex and produced a child with my brother and or sister. <laughs> like, why would like it's just, already like, happened? You can't erase it by saying it, they're your brother now. Just be friends. It, it, just be friends. It's the parlance. Or just no sex. I mean, I guess that would be how we'd say just, it today, but back then, this is what you would say. I mean, I guess if you're telling anybody I, about your personal business. I, In 1869. <laughs> we're both just like flabbergasted by that not the celibacy so much as the brother and sister line okay in 1869 yeah definitely rob (laughs) algernon transitioned to a religious profession so he went from being a civil servant to uh, uh, a curate uh, at atcham in shropshire for her part andy moved away from the church of england becoming a baptized catholic the following year so listen to this he he becomes he's basically on his way to becoming uh you know a a cleric in the Church of England, and she quits at the exact same time. <laughs> he chose God over her, and, and she couldn't take it. Uh, well, she did too, in a way, because she went and became a Catholic. Like, yeah, she chose God. A yeah, she's like <laughs> same God, different route. Okay, she was likely inspired, yeah. at least in part, by her brother John Bonus, who spent ten years as a Catholic priest in Middlesex. Her brother's example also led the way in Annie adopting vegetarianism that same year. So here we're talking about her actual brother. For Clara. Right. So she, not the one that she had kids no, not with, the, but wasn't her not, brother. Not, married, not husband, so, yeah. brother, yeah. priest, friend. <laughs> Ugh, not husband, brother, priest, friend. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. In October 1872, she took over the weekly ladies' own paper. <laughs> that again is the the All ladies' right. own paper. Sounds kind of yeah, spicy. Again, early version of Cosmo, and she shocked its readers by abruptly turning the focus of the paper from fashion and gossip to temperance and women's rights. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! in with the fashion, and then boom, you hit him with the women's rights. It's sort of like you know you yeah. got a subscription to Cosmo, and then then one day you just get this political magazine in the mail that says Cosmo at the top, but all the, you know... I would be delighted. No more sex positions. I would personally be delighted. You get the National Review. You're not getting any sex positions anymore. (gasps) 
Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, so uh, she also used the paper to argue strongly against vivisection. Uh, now, here's my definition of that. That is the brutal and now largely defunct practice of performing surgery on live animals. Let that sink in for a second. Yeah. So at this time period, I mean, we're, at, we're in like the early days of surgery. I mean, the early days of surgery last for about 2,000 years, but we're getting up to modern medicine. We're not too far off from the invention of antiseptics. And lot, the animal is alive. So, you know, anesthesia and stuff also, not so much a thing. In, didn't they used yeah. to do that with people too, though? Like people would just be alive and awake and like getting their. You didn't have a choice. I mean, but in the case of these animals, it's all purely experimental. Was the moral point that she oh, was making? Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's no actual medical benefit. They're just just playing mad you scientist. Just find really desperately ill people who need to be fixed and do yeah, it on well, them. Yeah, well, go back and tell them, Brie. <laughs> <laughs> I will do exactly But you're right, Nikki. So like in the American Civil War, uh, if you got shot in the arm or the leg and they were going to amputate the arm or the leg, you would get a shot of whiskey and you would get uh, often a bullet to bite down on or a piece of wood. Yeah, and just get held down by like big people. (laughs) Or whatever they had handy. Could just be some ladies, big ladies. I just pictured some like large burly ladies. I just meant like the biggest people around would like hold them down. The the Civil War doctor (laughs) sets up his medical tent and he says, give me your burliest ladies post haste. Yeah. And it's just these like hot large (laughs) women that come and hold you down while you have your leg amputated. It might make it go easier. I mean. I think it would. Some good news and some bad news, soldier. Okay. Uh, <laughs> following somewhat on the wrong side of history, Annie criticized Louis Pasteur for the development of vaccinations because his experiments involved live animals. It's not really an anti-vaxxer, but Pasteur apparently also used live animals in his work. She was like, do you have to do it like that? Though? Yeah, why well, do that, man? I think he worked, did he work with rabid dogs? Something like that. By all accounts, uh, Kingsford had a profound love for animals. At the vicarage in Shropshire, she kept guinea pigs as pets. Her favorite, Rufus, she'd smuggled over the border and kept with her almost constantly. I love it. Oh, yeah. Like in her pocket or something? Oh, yeah. She, yeah, like, she just smuggled Rufus the hamster. <laughs> like like rich women used to carry around chihuahuas 15 years ago. Yeah, she kept this guinea pig. Get this now. Yeah, Nikki, I know you like the, the little creatures. Uh, the creature lived nine years. A guinea pig. That's, oh, my God. That's good. That's really impressive. That's like twice the yeah. usual guinea pig life. Yeah, my sister k- killed hers in like four years. Well, yeah, <laughs> she yeah. obsessed over it. Um, by November, she was done with the newspaper and quit after having produced only four issues. <laughs> So, so Cosmo became the National Review for like two months, and then suddenly Cosmo came back. <laughs> I said what I need to say. Anyway, here's your fashion. That's basically it. Yeah, she got all her points out and moved on. In 1873, she met Edward Maitland, who would become a lifelong companion and co-author of several of her books. Maitland, who was born to a family of clergymen, much like Algernon Kingsford, was a one-time gold prospector who had traveled to California. He was 20 years older than Kingsford and a widower, having married and lost his wife Esther to consumption in Sydney, Australia. In 1858, he returned to England to begin a career as a novelist and animate up her mind to become a doctor. 
She was unable to enroll in the medical school in London as a result of her gender, and so she enrolled at the Paris Medical School in 1874 and was accompanied on this brief trip by Maitland, who apparently went at her husband's request. <laughs> Please, take my wife to Paris. I mean, take my, my wife. sister wife, <laughs> friend. <laughs> my sister wife. Yeah, Nikki and I are on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> Novelist, prospector, friend, take my priest, my sister wife, please, to the doctor land. Oh, my sister wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like uh, the Mormons, doesn't it? Sounds like the yeah, sister yeah, yeah. wives, yeah. She spent, not the real, not, I, apologies to the Mormons, but you know what I mean. Some of you are fine. We, we know what's going on Some on the outskirts there in Utah, yeah. in the desert. She spent the first year of medical school studying at home, where she successfully passed her exams and so was permitted to remain through the year. So she did a lot of her, she was basically self-teaching. At, she was like in a correspondence college of medicine, teaching herself from home. Dang. One of her first projects with Maitland was an early step on the road to what would become Kingsford's unique brand of occult Christianity, which is the reason we're all here today. And that book, uh, that first book was The Key to the Creeds. Not as good as the book that we're going to spend more time on, but I want to get into this book a little bit because it really sets the tone. It was published anonymously, uh, and it pitched itself as the work of an infirm priest writing to a friend on the belief that writing would help with his condition. It seemed like he probably had consumption or tuberculosis. Uh, I only say that because Kingsford suffered from tuberculosis throughout uh, her life. Ultimately, the narrator leaves for warmer climates to try and gain back his health. The priest is attempting to answer his friend's question as to whether only death can resolve the question of which religious creed is correct. In fact, says the priest, most religious creeds, including those formerly held by himself as a Catholic priest, are an illusion. Dun, dun, dun. That's what I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I know I was being very thoughtful about this. <laughs> Letting it so sink sorry. in. Yeah, Nikki's got the sound effects. To understand religion... A person yeah. must base their belief on logic and reason rather than divine revelation. Think, so hear her out on this. Like a Platonist or Neoplatonist, the goal is to reason our way around to an understanding of the ideal, which is the very nature of God, and thereby attain immort immor immortality. The idea of God has a twofold origin, writes the fictional priest, the craving of the intellect for a cause and of the soul for perfection. Images of God began with the exaltation of the reproductive organs, the origin of life in the eyes of early humans, which acknowledged a truth since overlooked that God possesses a duality that is both masculine and feminine. Go ahead, ladies. Enjoy that for a minute. Yep. I, I'm really here for this. A trinity is born out of that, and the dual God creates a third space in which this dual nature acts one side on the other, yielding a third form of existence. So we have the masculine God, the feminine God, or the masculine aspect of God and the feminine aspect of God. And when they interact, we have this third space or third God that's formed. That's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Got me? Yeah, I'm... Um loving this and i have thoughts please okay. continue <laughs> we'll wait for them vishnu <laughs> shiva brahma another version of this mm -hmm. from the trinity the priest turns his attention to the related question of humanity's fall from god's perfect grace 
It was on finding himself defective that he came to suppose that though assuredly made perfect originally, he had fallen from the state. True, the logic that was content with such a solution was itself defective inasmuch as one of the essential elements of an original perfection must be the ability to remain perfect. The fall then consists in man's becoming aware that his real does not equal the ideal he is able to imagine, or conversely, in his attaining a sense of perfection beyond that which he is able to realize. This is not an Augustinian approach, is it? It's this idea that the fall is the realization that you're not perfect, but you could be. Mm. Not the way we tend to think about the Garden of Eden. Right. Atonement is the merger of the ideal and the real, or the real in the form of humanity living up to its ideal maker's ideal intentions. Atonement means becoming your own ideal, which is God's ideal, realizing God's ideal in yourself, becoming the perfect you. Living your best life. Um, <laughs> Living your best life. <laughs> yeah, she, she doesn't really mean that. But, I mean, not the way we use it on, on social media. We close the gap right. between our imperfect real selves and the perfect ideal we imagine for ourselves. That's our work in this life. Prophets, messiahs, and teachers like Jesus and Buddha have accomplished this and so appear to possess an element of infinity and godliness. So that's all Jesus did. That's all the Buddha did. They just became their own ideal or God's ideal. <sighs> yes. Can you uh, say what you just said again? Sorry. I like threw myself off because I was like, can I say things? So we're trying to close the gap between the real, you as you are, and God's ideal. Right. Which you can, you know, fathom and reason your way into. And then you seek to become the ideal, to realize the ideal in yourself. Right. So, okay. One of the individuals that, um, after reading about this individual, like my mind was anything that I ever thought that I knew about them thrown out the window, like completely new view on this person, uh, which I'm really excited for, for everybody else. But, um, they specifically kind of had a constant battle with the concept of God being a higher entity and came to the conclusion that, Along these lines that uh, God is basically a reflection of yourself mm. that you have to make, yeah, not make it. peace with, but like, uh, I'm trying not to use the specifics, but um, because, because they, they specifically had heard something from a sermon that they they had sat in on and it stuck with them and it they interpreted it as god being within yourself and you can only reach god if you go within yourself to find god and make peace with yourself yeah it's not the same as like a crowley idea of self-deification or anything right because god is a kind of independent entity and yet god is in you to be realized yeah yeah the real god was in us all along yeah, I mean, Blavatsky said that in so many words, that we have an element of God in us. And and Kingsford's very much on board with a lot of theosophy, although ultimately she and Blavatsky go their separate ways. In Judeo-Christianity, two gods have been mistaken as one, and this has been the source of all the Abrahamic religion's theological troubles. The two gods are the carnal and the spiritual. The carnal is Old Testament God. 
Yahweh, who imposed harsh penalties, was inclined to kill, and favored blood and sacrifice. The New Testament God loves the world and sent his only son to save it by doing battle against all the powers of evil or man's lower nature, by stimulating the growth of the ideal, so reducing the real to its proper level. So there you see masculine and feminine as well. The law of Moses had failed to produce a morally perfect being until Jesus. His perfection, being answered by a violent death, opened a space for a new dispensation. Only God could could accomplish his own divine commands to perfection and supersede his own law. This is so wild. In Jesus, God transcends his own rules. The Old Testament law of Moses was about external and ceremonial obedience and had nothing to do with affection. It was driven by fear. Mm-hmm. Jesus, on the contrary, cared not for externals, but made the spirit all in all, and love for God the sole motive. Anyone who cultivated the ideal over the real, the spirit over the senses, could enjoy the treasure of heaven. This universal tendency of religious to represent the objects of their veneration as superior to the limitations of humanity makes it necessary to distrust all accounts professing to give details of their lives and conversations. So, I mean, you can hear, uh, this is in many ways a standard interpretation of Jesus and Christianity, that Jesus is turning inward as opposed to the external. I mean, people read the Gospels this way often, uh, but I think it's an interesting way of phrasing it. While the text of the Bible is imperfect, the historical figures shown therein cannot be completely misrepresented in terms of their lives and characters. And so, says Kingsford, we can at least trust to have received accounts of the spirit that was in Jesus. I think this is an important observation, too. Kingsford's not saying by any means that we should read the Bible as absolute truth. Like, these are, this is what happened. It's the work of human beings. Therefore, it's imperfect. I mean, this is how we've been talking about it this whole season. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, that doesn't mean that we should hang on every letter, but we can still read the Gospels and say, this is what Jesus was like, and this is, you know, the basics of who Jesus became and what we can aspire to be. There's that lesson in the Gospels. You shouldn't be obsessing over individual lines. You should be reading them holistically. Okay, so the church, or organized religion, is the most traditional form of Catholic Christianity and is the end product of what she calls the collective intuitions of the human consciousness and the collective facts of human life in their highest development. These facts don't need to be Christian, and indeed much of the specific detail about Jesus' life often celebrated by the church are subject to doubt because of the impulse for people to invent stories about their religious founders. We have mentioned on this show many times the Christmas story, which we just celebrated in the Western world is uh, pretty hard to swallow and not <laughs> not too it's my historically least accurate. Favorite thing. <laughs> oh God, I hate Christmas. I'm sorry. <laughs> <sighs> but the wise men and the myrrh. Uh, no. <laughs> Christianity happens to capture the highest human spiritual impulses, and so the church is Christian. So it's just like an accident of fate. The priest calls the church atheistic because it has self-consciously substituted an image of God for the real God, which, being ideal, has no place in the external or natural world. So she's not too happy, or her priest anyway, is not too happy with all the idolatry going on in the church. 
This ideal has sometimes misled us to believe that there are aspects of our nature which we must dismiss from our spiritual life. But for the truly Catholic, the grossest parts of our nature, even those we share in common with the brute creation, are capable of being idealized and exalted into the pure and holy. Sex, for example, is elevated to the status of an absolute love and fidelity between partners, the real elevated to the ideal. The process of idealization consists in imagining an object as transcending its limitations, existing in a perfection not actually obtainable by it, and even filling infinity with its expanded characteristics. And the faculty whereby we perform this act is the soul. For even death has no power over the children of the ideal. Rather, do they, when freed from the limitations of morality, rise and ascend into the brightest heaven the imagination can depict. Oh, God, Rob, this is the same person that I want to bring this back to that we're doing, that I did research on, that like had an epiphany that was basically that, and it was like, in one of the things it You're was talking so about beautifully written i am <laughs> oh my god i am <laughs> i am obsessed with him now i i don't like in the best way like his story is so much more heartbreaking and wholesome than i ever could have thought it was like mm. reading the book written by his daughter honestly broke my heart more than anything and gave me such a view on his actual religious beliefs that i did not expect like completely bit of a teaser um, yeah no so, god <laughs> rasputin talks about this idealization of 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 self of of activity yeah. of action of life and and also about having to balance all of the things of human nature and that god wouldn't have put those things in us if he didn't accept them himself so like sins of the flesh and things like that he's like Everything, even the most innocent things, do it. So why, and God doesn't punish them for it, so why should we punish ourselves for it? I do think that that's Kingsford's point. I I think it's odd, her personal life story and her unusual relationship with her husband, but I I, I think ultimately I I can read this that way. I prefer to read this that way. I, I don't think she's suggesting the brother and sister arrangement is the idealization of a sexual union, although I'm sure she had a very good relationship with Algernon, but anyhow. Did she? <laughs> well, I mean, they were, everything was pretty, I guess it was mutual, man. I mean, I mean, I feel like it's very possible to have a love for somebody that then might become less of a romantic or a sexual love, but you still yeah, love them the same. and then you become friends. I know, it's just, it's, I know. But you're Nikki, married I know. friends. I'm just trying to make it better. (laughs) You're married friends. The immortality is a transcendence of the real, or this immortality is a transcendence of the real, and as such should have no bearing on our natural selves. The afterlife should provide no motive, either of conduct, feeling, or belief. Similarly, the Catholic Church has erred by assuming temporal authority when its focus should be exclusively on the quest for the ideal, which is beyond this world. The Protestants are no better and have conjured a half-truth for themselves by removing the feminine nature of God, the Divine Mary, from their worship. Ooh, tell them. Yeah, so, I mean, those are the two sins. It's the Catholic Church's, uh, I think what she's saying about the Catholic Church is its obsession with rules for mm-hmm. living. Do this, do that. Yeah. Um, you know, are you familiar with this, Nikki? But church, yeah. <laughs> you, which, which rules most annoy you? Oh. Wait, I can't just, like, agree to things. I don't have an answer. (laughs) 
you could agree. Um, Riley and I were talking uh, in the last episode about the church having rules for investing now. I, I mean, it's it's just like every aspect what? of life. Yeah, how to invest your money according to the Catholic Church's code of honor. What is and is, isn't okay to invest in. Uh, I mean, that's really what she's saying. It's this obsession with this worldly concerns. That's the Catholic Church's sin. And and then, of course, the Protestant Church's sin is, is the loss of the feminine, the emphasis on the masculine in their practice. Oh, God. I, I need to get my head out of my research because there's another person that this applies to that I was reading about and did my thing on. Jack Parsons. Yeah, Jack Parsons. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Another thing to look forward to. Um <laughs> So anyway, that's Kingsford and Maitland's take uh, as channeled through their priest. In 1875, getting back to Anna's story, she moved with her family to Paris to continue her studies and to fight with her professors over the fact that they were dissecting live animals. She again yeah, I probably wouldn't be happy either. Can you imagine? Yeah. She again received permission to study in England and attended the first children's hospital in the English-speaking world, which had been founded in Chelsea. She periodically returned to Paris over the next several years to take classes and exams and persistently argued with her professors every time about conducting surgery on live animals. I mean, I feel like you can't only bring it up once. You got to keep... There's got to be some consistency there. I mean, we all love animals. We've got cat people, rabbit people, dog people all in the same room here. It's hard to... Like, if, if you knew this was happening... Like, like, imagine if you came to campus, right? You came to college, and you know that in the science building, they've got a live dog and a live cat and a live rabbit, and they're just going to tear that sucker open in the middle of class, I and it's going to scream. I was going to say, I literally would break it and free them. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> so me and Bree together would break into the university and free them? That, yeah, I mean, I that's how she felt. It was, it's deeply them. grating. I think she's ahead of her time in many ways on on animal rights um, and um, empathy for animals and and I, I don't I, I think she's definitely ahead of her time. I don't think her her peers would have felt quite so strongly as she did. But today, it's really easy to to feel our way into her perspective on this. She just couldn't take it. Uh, anyway, uh, she confronted the hospital's chief eventually, who admitted to her that the surgeries were unnecessary and were only done to assert the profession's independence from moralists. Ew. Are Whoa. you kidding me? Yes, isn't that awful? That is horrific. Yeah. In 1880, she passed her finals and completed her thesis on vegetarianism. She was the 18th British woman to ever become a medical doctor. Oh, wow. Good for her. Yeah. But philosophy and spirituality were her greatest passions. She reminds me of Anton Chekhov. Uh, I love Anton Chekhov, who was also tubercular. Um, and he was a doctor, a medical doctor, but he, his main profession, he, he was a playwright. That's mostly what he did. He lived in the mm-hmm. theater. He was a writer. He wrote short stories and wrote plays. She's pretty much just like Chekhov, but, you know, God. She's, <laughs> she's all about religion. <laughs> But she's God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, she would. Well, I mean, in a way, she may have realized her inner godhood, but. Uh, We're all God. Yeah. 
she got this medical degree and, and certainly enjoyed medicine and was interested in it, but her greater passion was something else. It's just an odd thought. Like today you think about people getting their medical degree, like that, like that's their whole life. Yeah. There's not this other that's thing you do. Very true. In 1876, she began to have visions and psychic impressions of her past lives, which became the basis for the spiritual and theosophical books that were to follow. Maitland, who would be her confederate in these endeavors, was practicing a form of meditation that involved tracing his ideas back to their origin uh, at the core of his consciousness. In 1877, Kingsford contributed to Maitland's The Soul and How It Found Me, offering to him her visions as a seer. Around this time, she met the theosophist and spiritualist Lady Caithness and traveled to her home in Paris in 1878, where Caithness introduced her to the works of Jacob Bohm and Eliphas Levy. Uh, so it, this is interesting. Lady Caithness is in our, I think our second episode, maybe our third episode on Emma Harding Britain. Uh, she's a huge um, benefactor of spiritualist mediums and occultists at this time period, a major player in all these movements. And she believed that she had some uh, connection to Mary, Queen of Scots. Hmm. Like she, I don't know if she believed she was Mary, Queen of Scots, or she believed she could channel Mary, Queen of Scots. But yeah, she had this fascinating woman. One day, I mean to get to her castle, uh, the Caithness Estate. It's in the very northernmost tip of Scotland. Oh, sounds delightful. Right? Nikki, you can come. It's cold there. He'll be fine. Uh, (laughs) Cold and windy. My favorite. And and beautiful. I think it's quite green and beautiful, too. And it seems so, like, Scotland seems so mystical. I think my family on my mom's side is Scottish. It is mystical, yeah. There's Mm -hmm. a depth to that country. Okay, we're going to stop it there uh, at the end of Kingsford's Uh, first part of her career and before she writes her perfect way of Christ with uh, Maitland. Um, We're going to come back next time and get into the perfect way uh, and get you through to the end of Kingsford's life and her quarrel with the Theosophical Society.